Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Last week we introduced this new series. We, we talked about how the book of 1 Samuel is describing events that took place between a thousand years and 900 years before the birth of Christ, that this is ancient history. Uh, that, that these words were written down sometime between 900 years before Christ and 600 years before Christ. And they were written for our encouragement, for our comfort. This is historical narrative, but, but as Christians, we need to both understand the, the doctrines of the gospel, what we saw in the book of Ephesians over many months, but we need to see God's grace displayed in real human lives, the, the real events of, of people who, who walked with the Lord or walked away from the Lord, to see the patterns of God's work. And that's what we see in this book. Remember, last week, though, we said that, that this, this book about the rise and fall of kings, about Samuel, the last judge, and Saul, the first king, and David, the greatest king of Israel, that, that it begins with an ordinary man, Elkanah, his ordinary wife, Hannah, who is struggling with ordinary problems that so many have faced in human history, that she had domestic turmoil, she was struggling with barrenness, unable to bear a child, though she longed for a child. We saw how she, she poured her heart out to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord first gave her peace before her external circumstances changed. And then the Lord answered her prayer. And she then took her three-year-old son, Samuel, and dedicated him to the Lord at the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is before the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And now her, her young son would serve the Lord throughout his life um, at the temple becoming one of the great prophets of the Lord. But then we're, we're continuing with this woman, Hannah, this godly woman. And today we're looking at her prayer. It's sometimes called the, the prayer of Hannah. We could also call it, call it a, a psalm of praise, that she responds with these eloquent words to the Lord. So again, this is 1 Samuel Chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. and By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry 
have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Father, we pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, the guidance of your Holy Spirit to understand. We pray for the the protection of our hearts against bias, against our tendency to misunderstand or to misapply or to read in our own ideas to God's word but we pray that we could read out of your word your ideas and that we would see how to apply them in specific circumstances of our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We can fall into two traps in the Christian life. One trap is what we could call shallow emotionalism. This is often what we see in the the modern evangelical church, where you go to to church for an emotional experience, that it's about the band, it's about the music, it's about the lights, it's about how you feel in the room, but then often it can become shallow, that there is no content to it, there's no depth. But then the other danger, the other trap, is that what we could call dead orthodoxy. And this is what you might see in more liturgical, traditional churches, where you have great old hymns, you have depth, you have have rich words, you have beautiful old Bible translations, but then somehow it, it doesn't touch to the experience of your daily life, that, that you end up with the, the deep words that you read on Sunday that don't mean anything to you, and then your ordinary life throughout the week completely disconnected from God, that you have orthodox ideas about God in your head, but it's dead. So again, these are the two traps, shallow emotionalism 
dead orthodoxy. So what is the, the path between shallow emotionalism and dead orthodoxy? And it's that path that we see here from Hannah, that she shows us a path between shallow emotionalism and dead orthodoxy. And so the first thing that Hannah does is that she, she teaches us how to avoid shallow emotionalism. Because look at the, the content of her prayer. That she has a, a rich, systematic theology. That if you attend seminary, uh, you learn that, that systematic theology are the, the topics where you take what the Bible teaches and you arrange it topically. What does the Bible teach about God? What does the te Bible teach about man? What does the Bible teach about salvation? What does the Bible teach about last things that you try to be systematic in your understanding of God? And here, Hannah has this, this rich systematic theology. And specifically, her, her doctrine of God shines through brightly that she knows the attributes of God. We see the, the holiness of God in verse 2. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. And then the uniqueness of God shines through, that there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then the, the knowledge of God shines through. She says in verse 3, talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And then the, the justice of God shines through. By him, actions are weighed. And then all the way from verse 4 through verse 8, we see the sovereignty of God that he kills, he makes alive. The second half of verse 8, he's, he's, she says that the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them, he has set the world, that he is completely sovereign in all of his works. She has a rich, systematic theology that shines forth in her prayer, that she, she prays her biblical, systematic theology back to the Lord. But then if you go to seminary, you learn that there's a, a distinction between what's called systematic theology and biblical theology. Hopefully our systematic theology is biblical, but in technical terminology, biblical theology is where you, you trace themes through the storyline of the Bible. You see the unfolding of a theme from, from the beginning all the way to the end. It's tracing the historical development of doctrine in the Bible. And we see that Hannah not only has a rich systematic theology, that she also has a rich biblical theology. That she points out a, a prominent biblical theological theme. And it's God's pattern whereby he humbles the proud and he exalts the lowly throughout generations. In other words, she not only knows who God is, she knows how God works in history. She sees this pattern all the way from the Old Testament where, where God exalted humble Joseph, 
humbled his proud brothers, where you see the Exodus, where God exalts humble Israel from slavery, and he humbles proud Pharaoh. And we'll see the same theme throughout 1 Samuel. He humbles proud Goliath, exalts the, the humble David. This is a major theme throughout the Bible. And so she knows how God operates. And in a way, her depth, her systematic and biblical theology is very similar to another godly woman within the pages of Scripture. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Remember, Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and she goes to visit Elizabeth, another godly woman who uh, was barren and then was now pregnant. And Mary delivers what's sometimes called the, the Magnificat, this song of praise to the Lord. And it flows completely in the pattern of Hannah. I think that she's in some ways modeling her words after Hannah in the Old Testament, a thousand years before her own time. Look at Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent home empty. So here you see Mary pushing against shallow emotionalism. Like Hannah, her predecessor, she has a, a rich systematic theology. She confesses the, the holiness of God, the complete holiness. She confesses the, the mercy of God, the strength of God, that she has content about God in her mind. She knows the attributes of God. But then she also has this rich biblical theology. And notice that she highlights the very same biblical theological theme as Hannah. It's the pattern of God throughout history, bringing down the proud, exalting the lowly. And she confesses this theme and saying, this is how God has operated throughout the generations. I know who God is. I know how he works in history. And then her biblical and her systematic theology is transformed into prayer, into praise, into worship of God. It's anything but shallow emotionalism. And this is important for us as well. How can we avoid shallow emotionalism in the Christian life? And that we are called to, to follow the pattern of Hannah, to follow the pattern of Mary, these godly women of old, 
that we are to, to know our Bibles, that as we read our Bibles, to constantly be thinking, who is God and how does God work in history? What are the themes that unfold in the pages of Scripture? To root ourselves in the, the depth of what God has done for us in Christ. And the more that we bathe and, and root ourselves in that strong content about God and his work in history, the more that, that we'll be rescued from the shallow religious experience of our time to have prayer and worship that flows in the, in the pattern of Hannah and Mary. But then remember I said that, that we face these two dangers, these two traps in the Christian life. One is shallow emotionalism. But remember the other trap is dead orthodoxy. Do we see dead orthodoxy from Hannah in our text? And the answer is absolutely not. That, that Hannah, second of all, teaches us how to avoid dead orthodoxy. Because flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 in your Bible and notice the way she speaks from experience. The old authors used to talk about experiential religion, or, or sometimes even in older English, they would talk about experimental religion. And it doesn't mean that we're experimenting, but, but it was a way of talking about experience, that, that our faith should touch the, the daily experience of our lives. And we see this from Hannah. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 2 of First Samuel. She says, my heart exalts, rejoices in the Lord. Notice she's not speaking generally. She's not saying it's good for people who believe in God to exalt in the Lord. But she can say, my heart exalts in the Lord. And then she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And throughout scripture, the horn is a picture of strength. It's the, the strength of a, an animal, it's horn. And so she's saying that my strength is exalted in the Lord. It's lifted up in the Lord. But again, notice she's not speaking abstractly. She's not saying that the Lord helps people generally or the Lord strengthens people. But she's saying that my horn is exalted she says, my mouth derides my enemies, that everyone who is opposed to God, everyone that was against Hannah, she says, that because I rejoice in your salvation. And again, notice the, the personal language. I rejoice in your salvation. That she is speaking from experience not simply knowing about God in her head, but knowing God, knowing his mercy, knowing his power brought to bear in her life. Flip back to Luke chapter 1 and look again at the, the song of Mary in the Magnificat. 
verse 46 of Luke 1. And listen here again how she has this very personal language of God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That she's able to speak about God in, in the first person. This is a personal God. This isn't a list of attributes in a systematic theology textbook. This isn't a boring biblical theology that you read and it stays on the, the dusty bookshelf. But for her, her biblical theology and her systematic theology are not abstract but personal because she sees it and she experiences it in her daily life. This is something that I've been working on in my own personal devotional life. Um, I have an old um, journaling Bible that I hadn't used that much. It's one of those Bibles with marg large margins on the side that you can write notes. Um, and so I, I've been trying to write some prayers and margins in my individual Bible time. Um, and I was struck by the fact that I, I would often state my observations in a very impersonal, general form. Something like, we should humble ourselves before God, or we should pray more, or the church should value this attribute. And, and I was struck by, wait a second, what am I, what am I doing that, that, that I need to humble myself before the Lord? I need to, to pray more. And I'm not saying that we should turn our, our Bible reading into this ego-focused look at ourselves, that it's all about me. But yet, if, when we're, we're reading the scripture, that it should be personal, it should be experiential, it, it should be something that, that is, is touching our life in a personal way. And so for you in your life, can you speak in this very personal way about God? Do you simply know about God, or do you know God? Can you speak of God as a Savior, or can you speak of him as my Savior, as your Savior? Do you know about his grace, or have you experienced his grace in your life? Do you know about the new birth, the call to be born again, or have you experienced the new birth? Have you been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life? Have you experienced the, the, that sight by faith of the glory of Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection for you, for your salvation? And if not, if you feel like you're, you're sitting in abstraction, like you, you know about God, but you don't know God, then the call isn't to despair. It's not to, to feel bad. It's not to be jealous of the spiritual experience of others. 
but to turn to the personal God of the Bible in prayer, saying, Lord, I have not experienced the new birth. I've, I don't know if I'm born again. Make me to be born again. Lord, I don't know if I've experienced your grace in my life. Show me your grace. Show me your mercy experientially so that I can respond and praise and worship like Hannah, that I can say that, that God is my Savior, that I can rejoice in his salvation like Mary, that, that he has done great things for me. But then as we wrap up today, I want to highlight one final way that we can find this path between shallow emotionalism and dead orthodoxy. So turn back to 1 Samuel and look at the second half of verse 10 with me in your Bible. Hannah says that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, there's that word again, horn, the strength of his anointed. Now this verse causes great consternation for secular biblical scholars. This causes many secular scholars to deny the origin of this text as being from Hannah. They say there's no way that Hannah could have written this song of praise or spoken this psalm of praise to be written down by someone else because she speaks of the strength of God's king and the horn of his anointed. And they say, well, she was before the time of King Saul and the time of King David. There was no king in the land. There was there was no anointed one sitting on the throne of Israel. And so they speculate that this was written after the time of Hannah and was attributed to Hannah later on. But in my opinion, that reveals more about the, the scholars than it does about Hannah because there, there are so many explanations that show that this could easily be the words of Hannah, that it is the words of Hannah. Because one, Hannah was at a time where the, the nations around Israel had kings. Even though they were being ruled by judges, they knew the concept of kingship. She knew God as the king. Also, this is a time where people were beginning to ask for a king. That in the time of her son, Samuel, Israel would come and, and demand a king like the, the nations around them. And so it's natural that this this expectation of a coming king would, would be in the air of the time, as it were. But then also, remember that back in Deuteronomy 17, so in the Law of Moses, there is an extended section where God gives commands for kings in Israel. He, he tells them how to be godly kings. And you look at that and you say, well, why did he have commands for kings before they were kings? And it's because there was an expectation, even in the, the law of Moses that preceded Hannah's time, 
that there would be a king and that there need, there need to be laws to govern kingship in Israel. But then I think the, the ultimate key is found in her language when she talks about the anointed one, that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That in Hebrew, the, the word anointed is the word Messiah. That she's, she's calling for God to exalt the, the strength of his Messiah, his anointed one. And so as she's praying, as she's worshiping God, she's standing in this line of expectation all the way from Genesis 3. Because throughout the entire Old Testament, there is the expectation of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. There is the expectation of the, the prophet that would arise like Moses among his brothers. And, and here she has this expectation of a Messiah, a coming king, who would have strength, who would be exalted, who would judge all the ends of the earth, that would bring this final judgment on the world. And so in a sense, she's speaking prophetically in the Old Testament perspective. She's speaking prophetically of Saul and David, who would arise a generation later. But then through the eye of faith, she's looking beyond that time to the Messiah whose horn would be exalted in the salvation of his people, to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ who will bring judgment on the world as he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And it's with this Messiah at the center of our lives, as the center of our theology, that we find this path between shallow emotionalism and dead orthodoxy. Because when we have Christ at the center, it's not shallow emotionalism because it's, it's rooted in the, the depth of Christ who came as the Messiah to save his people. But it's also not dead orthodoxy because it's not about an, a list of ideas in the textbook, but it's about a Savior who is alive, who's ruling and reigning, who's coming again, who we can experience by faith in union with Christ. And so with Christ at the center, then we can begin to apply the, the words of Hannah even more fully. In verse 2, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. That when we're in Christ, when the Messiah is at the center of our theology, we lose all grounds for boasting, that we can boast only in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. And then it's in Christ that we find the application of verse 9, that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He will guard their path, that we find Christ is the one who guards our steps, protects us. At the end of verse 9, it says, For not by might shall a man prevail. That's ultimately what we see in Christ. That, that in Christ, we see that it's not our strength that we prevail. It's not by our strength that we work our way up to God. We don't find our own path that we prevail by the strength of Christ, by his power at work in us and for us, breaking down the, the shallow nature of our Christian experience 
um, elevating the dead experience that Christ becomes all in all for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would humble our pride. We, we see this pattern throughout history where you oppose the proud but give grace to the lowly. And I pray that we can humble ourselves before the, the mighty hand of God so at the proper time you might exalt us, that we would cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties on Christ because he cares for us. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be, be anxious about anything. Lord, we, we pray for hearts that, that can avoid the, the shallow emotionalism of so much of the, the modern American Christian experience. We pray for, for a rooted faith and content and doctrine and truth and the reality of who you are and what you have done. But also, Lord, we recognize the danger of dead orthodoxy, lifeless Christianity. So, Lord, today, give us the experience of your love, the experience of your grace. Lord, for anyone who has not experienced your work in their lives, who have not experienced new birth, who have not experienced eyes to see, heart to believe, Lord, Give them eyes. Give them a heart. Give them the experience of Christ. And Lord, we, we long for the day when the horn of your anointed will be uh, exalted, when you will display your judgment to the ends of the earth when Christ comes. Lord, keep Jesus at the center of everything. Jesus as our life, our peace, our all. We pray in his name.